Hello and welcome. I'm Matthew Fox. I'm Eric Lankford. And this is This Week at the Movies. You are joining us for the debut episode. Uh, we are eventually going to be doing this uh, on a weekly basis, but uh, for the time being, we're, we're going to launch today with a little bit about the show and about some of our favorite movies. Then we'll be back Labor Day weekend with our favorites of summer, uh, be back in October with some of our favorite scary movies. And then just to give you a full fright, we'll be back Thanksgiving weekend weekly. So Eric, how are you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic. Matthew, how are you? I'm doing good. I'm excited Living to well. uh, jump in and talk a little bit about the movie. So Me too. every week uh, you'll be seeing that this will be a, a film party. Um, so you can actually follow us on Twitter at oh, yeah. Weekly Film Party. Um, kind of a, a good inspiration uh, for the show for me. Um, one of the things that always drew me into loving film was as a, as a young person, as a younger person watching uh, Siskel and Ebert and they're at the movies. I don't think it was officially the end of the weekend until uh, Sunday nights. So I popped them on and heard what they had to say from the balcony going back and forth. Mm-hmm. And I've long enjoyed uh, discussing films with Eric and asked him if he would take this journey with me. Yeah, I think there was, we've been on a couple of podcasts uh, associated with the music city drive-in namely the Music City Drive-In podcast. And to tell you what, I yeah, some of the most enjoyable parts of that has been our discussions. I always tried to sneak my way in and talk a little more in depth, even when we're just naming titles of movies and things. And yeah, I'm excited to get to do a little bit more of this. Yeah, so every uh, week we will be looking at a couple of films. We'll be looking at a couple of new films that we saw as we're going forward, and then we will be doing some throwback films. As we're doing some of our special shows, we'll be leaning a little bit more into the throwback films, but I can't wait um, to look at some of those. We're going to adopt a familiar scoring system. We're going to use our thumbs. Yep, out of respect, we're going to be doing a four-thumbs-up system rather than a two-thumbs-up system because – me, my brain works weird where I think like I think of two thumbs up and I just picture Ebert with two thumbs up and I'm like, hey, hey. they have four thumbs. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. So if we, you know, if I give it two thumbs up, that was my highest one. Still liked it. Medium. It was OK. Not great. Avoid at all costs. Yep. You can kind of think of it as like a five, four, three, two, zero, like one zero. Um, yeah. And if we are like John JPP and blow our hand off, then you know it was a really bad movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just a stump. Just, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm hoping this will be kind of a fun time for everyone, um, mm-hmm. you know, where we get to explore movies and, uh, share some laughs and get some recommendations. What about you, Eric? See, this is the benefit of of doing this now. I think it's fun to revisit just a very simple premise uh, for a review show. You know, Siskel and Ebert, the way they they dove into movies, they had 20 minutes of screen time to dig in and explore what a movie is and what they thought about it and felt about it and keep moving. And they were working actively on the side. But in 2022, you guys can join the conversation and pick at things and poke at us and all that kind of stuff. And I, I love the concept of coming back to that format and doing that. You know, I've loved movies since I was 
I have at least canon evidence of me when I was about four years old dressing as Peter Pan for a solid week and running around my front yard and Luke Skywalker and all that. In fact, some of the first movies I saw, and I wanted to ask you this, was uh, when A New Hope was re-released in 97. Mm-hmm. And I think some of my earliest like vivid experiences is like Disney's Tarzan and The Lord of the Rings are some of the biggest theatrical experiences i remember and i was curious what are the biggest like first memories you have yeah i think well one of my early ones uh, which <laughs> remains a personal favorite is is the cup you Just know getting a um, re-release soon jaws i you know every it's not really fourth of july for me until i've watched um Joey Chestnut consume his body weight in hot dogs and then jaws <laughs> consume its body weight in um dumb uh islanders yeah however but uh so jaws was always one star wars you know i can remember watching um especially empire and return of the jedi and uh pulling out my gi joes and setting up the giant you know my a combination of gi joes star trek figures and star wars figures because you know at the time it was okay for all those things to co-mingle to what what is canon battles what is canon the characters Um, weren't even who they are you just stand them up and it's like this one's the hero and this one is the person and they could just come up with a thing in your head yeah absolutely one of i'm looking forward to our october show i know my my mom will as well because one of the ones that i picked on there as a personal favorite was a a film that she dropped on me um (laughs) which I'll tell tell more about later, but that one's kind of always stuck with me. But I think Jaws, Star Wars, some of the movies that are still um, favorites today. I think, you know, I've heard people, I was born in in 1981. You know, I've heard people who were born in the 70s talk about that first experiencing Star Wars on the big screen as kind of that Mm -hmm. seminal, wow, movies can do this. I think for me, it was seeing Jurassic Park. I was 12 years old when the original Jurassic Park and I remember just going and that, you know, there you go. That moment when Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler get out of the Jeeps and it pulls back and you see the brontosaurus and it's just this wow moment. Um, You know, I had my mom buy me the book and uh, fortunately she didn't pre-screen it because I don't know if that was a book that was Michael Crichton aimed at 12 year olds, but <laughs> it started a love affair with Michael Crichton um, and films. But uh, do you have one of those kind of wow moments? See, my relationship with film is so weird because when growing up, it, I was born in 91. So, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things that you grow up in the middle of uh, blockbuster season where everybody sees it kind of just as entertainment and nobody, you know, around where I live sees it as something. It's like, well, let's go actively pursue a career ironic because Atlanta is now like the new, the third uh, New York and Hollywood and whatnot. But, um, uh, no, Atlanta and Vancouver are where almost everything gets produced now. Yeah. So um, it's just, to me, I think one of the biggest movies that struck me in a way that it was in between something that is art and something that is commercial is Inception. Uh, seeing that at the midnight premiere uh, I, I've, I've had this long-standing crusade of confusion where everyone sees the uh, top spinning at the end and automatically assumes that that is an invitation to consider whether things that happened in the movie happened or not. But to me, that top was such a profound visual that just like 
for one brief second takes you away from the core character story and makes you think, look how powerful the ideas that we listen to are and how powerful stories can be. And then it's like, whoop, cut to black. And ever since then, it's just been like, yeah, stories have been my whole life. You know, storytelling, like, and, and particularly in movies have been the most moving, crazy experiences where I always use them to relate to people. I mark relationships with like when I've seen what movies with people. Um, yeah, it's just, it's one of those things where you don't really realize how important it is to you until you do. And then life try to try to incorporate as much of that into your life as you can. So, yeah, and one of the things we're gonna do in this uh, first episode is we thought uh, if you're gonna take this journey with us and listen to us talk about movies, we'd help you get to know us a little bit by uh, sharing a little bit of our background, um, mm -hmm. what makes us passionate about films, and then each of us are gonna share our favorite film. Because um, I know that's always a question that gets asked. I don't know about you, since I love movies so much. When people ask that, I, I mean, I do have the number one, have a he obviously, headache. Also, a stress headache. Yeah, you feel you know, like, can I narrow it down to 50? Is that acceptable? If you guys, what you're doing me, in your yeah. list, yeah, I love that list, by the way. If you don't follow Matt's blog, you absolutely should, because some of just the perfect amount of notes of why some movies hit and resonate. I think the first one you posted was 10 things I hate about you. Yeah, that was, that was back down in there. That was either uh, 49 or 48. Yeah. Well, I, I, this, I'm curious though. We are going to talk about our number one today. Does that mean we're getting like a preview for people who watch this? Indeed. Um, ah, yeah, okay. Know, but you know, I think currently I have my number ones either scheduled to drop Christmas week or New Year's week. I literally planned it out um, to where there I would be 52 weeks. Okay. I have oh, wow. Stuff okay. In there. So yeah, I've been going through my top uh, movies and TV this year and then um, next year, which actually will end up being part of the show i'm going to count down uh my top 50 films of the 1970s which we are okay. going to talk about i'm also going to do on saturdays my top 50 superhero films of all time oh yeah so i've been which, cultivating we're there i mean i mean you get almost 50 a year now that's what's yeah. been hard you know waiting to see some of the ones that come out and all oh, does that tweak or whatever uh, for me i guess I've always kind of loved film, as I talked about the seminal moments. But when I went to school, I went as a broadcast journalism major at Biola University, which is the Biblical Institute of Los Angeles. So as a radio, television, and film major, you do all kinds of things. And it was a film theory class that I took uh, with one of my professors, Dr. Parham, that just kind of made me think about movies in a different way that was... Um, he brought in clips of all these things I'd never seen. And we'd talk about all these different movies. And every week when I was in college, I would probably go, I, I set my schedule up. So I never had to go on Fridays, Fridays, I would go to the theater and I would see one to four films, depending on how much was out that I wanted. But then I would also go to video stores. Now kids, these are things where you could go and they'd have millions of copies of videos, or DVDs. I would pick a genre. I would pick a letter of the alphabet and my roommate and I would pick eight to 10 things we hadn't seen and stack them up. And that was probably where I started deep diving through my cinema education. Sometimes out of that film theory class, I would get ones that I wanted to go. That was where I 
kind of developed my love for the Coen brothers because one of the first movies he looked at in film theory was clips out of uh, Barton Fink, which if you've never seen that, the cinematography and some of the choices they use for storytelling is masterful. But I went through all of like 1990s Coen brothers. Um, and even though one of their more recent films is one of my all-time favorites, 1990s Coen Brothers was probably the zenith of their create. some of the creative choices and things they made. That was how I first discovered Miller's Crossing, which is another movie that's in my list. So I've I've kind of kept that up. You know, I go uh, to the to the theater. That's that's like my special place you know if i'm in a place in my life where i'm so busy that i can't go i know i'm starting to get emotionally out of balance because i just love to go and to still to me the magic of the theater where you just put everything aside and get drawn in to the world of story um you know i if you guys follow me on letterbox i've rated and reviewed almost seven thousand films now and it's just it's just become a real passion how about you eric so you know, you, you mentioned video stores and honestly, by the time I had what you could quote unquote call expendable income, uh, the year was 2009. Um, and when I got into a pattern where I could do if only you'd like gotten there work, earlier, Blockbuster would still be alive. It about two years into that, it became a Shane's rib shack. So, you know. <laughs> Uh, I still go there and I still think, man, where I'm sitting used to be like the horror aisle, you know, and we we would just love like it, I, it's so odd now. I think of some movie titles and I, you see the posters and images and I think like of that that feeling of like walking through like a carpeted establishment and like looking at a rack of all face front titles and just seeing what grabbed your attention and like exploring something new. And now I'm still watching movies that I don't realize, oh, this is that movie. You know, like seeing um, I, I almost iconic uh, Brain Dead, the cover for that, with the woman's mouth open, with the eyes in it. Or I don't know if it's called Dead Alive in the US or Brain Dead, but either way, I finally saw it. Man, that movie's hilarious. Um, you know, it, so I, I knew I wanted to do something, but I wasn't sure how committed I could be to it. Uh, for one reason or another. And so I minored in film studies at the University of Georgia. I um, studied film history primarily and writing. Um, so I, I never really quite took cinematography classes, but I, I snuck back in here uh, a short film that I helped write and produce and direct a tiny bit um, called The Love Monster. Uh, so, and then uh, oddly enough, the reason I'm here, one of the reasons I'm here I don't think I would be here if it weren't for an app called Rizzle, where I met uh, Ricky Valero, who people watching this are generally going to know. And on Rizzle, I made this silly 10-minute short, one minute at a time, uh, about vampires. And we won that contest. So, you know, it's one of those things, like, just filmmaking in general. Like, th this is uh, Chungking Express, one of the movies that I saw uh, because of school that just kind of smacked me across the face and changed like a lot of the way that I watch movies. And I, man, I don't even know where to direct this, this, this other than just to say, <sighs> yeah, like I, everything from rewinding and rewatching bits of Indiana Jones and the last crusade as a 10 year old up to uh, just leaving the theater, like a few hours ago, watching bodies, 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 like, 
there's never an experience not worth talking about or engaging with someone like even some of the worst movies I've experienced where I feel like there was no value added at all to my life still gave me a chance to engage in exactly what you're talking about where you sit and for a few moments you're transported into something and it means something to you even though it's just a compilation of images and sounds for an hour or and a half or more. I think at some point in time, everyone that gets involved in film criticism has worked on making movies too. I remember in college, we had to, we had to make one and you don't think about it at the time, but uh, they, they put us into groups and the script that the, the guy that was our director chose took place entirely at night. <laughs> Great for commercial. For three months of weekends, every weekend night, to go out there and shoot and i'm like this is not i don't even want to watch this movie anymore <laughs> because all i all i could think was every friday and saturday night you're shooting from like 8 p.m to 4 a.m in uh -uh. and around these apartments and then editing i quickly realized i love screenwriting i love storytelling i love watching the finished product but being, the making... uh, being on a set and the making and how long it takes to get shots so, so editing. Okay. I have like my entire adult life uh, been fan editing. So I'll take a movie that I just wish was a little different for some reason and work on it. And I've done like, I, I brought this up in an old podcast. I've done the Hobbit into one extended movie. I've done, um, which let's be honest. It's a shorter book. It could have been one three hour movie and actually been it really works. Good. Yeah. Being three three hour movies, I have other questions. Yep. I've done uh the Star Wars prequels. One of the, one of the most interesting ones that I think worked was I did a weird fan edit of the Max Payne movie with Mark Wahlberg <laughs> using um music, it's like score from the games and reworking the structure of it so that you would flash back to the past and more of a high contrast, ha ha ha, black and white and come back to the present and and make that story more of a maze. I don't know. There's, there's just so much I have. I do have a lot of fun with the process. I don't think there's any part of the process. I haven't been like, yeah, I could do this like 40 hours a week. Plus, you know, whatever, like 80 hours a week. I know people work crazy hours doing the movies and stuff. And I have a friend that causes me to catch things in my throat. Sometimes like I can say this now, the daredevil suit is yellow. That's going to be on Netflix. Right. That seems wow. like, a way out of the way thing. But the reason I bring that up is I have a friend who works on the costume in the costume union that works primarily for Marvel in Atlanta. Now this person, I don't remember them having a crazy passion for movies, but I remember them having a crazy passion for comic books and art. And it seems like everyone around me, everyone is affected one way or another and just kind of moves this direction. So I just seeing everyone get passionate about it and having it be a real part of my life at all is just fantastic. Which, again, I owe you a thank you for, you know, bringing me here. So, yeah. 
Well, a big part of what we're going to do with these episodes is uh, we want to keep it a tight half hour. You know, Siskel and Ebert, they got their thumbs out. They got their arguments in. They got their popcorn. And 29 minutes later, you were ready to go out and rock it at the movies. So before we leave, we wanted to take a chance uh, to go over our favorite films of all time. And so I I will go first. um, And I'm going to share a little bit about mine. Uh, and some of the reasons I like it. And then um, Eric actually recently saw it, so he's ready to go, and then uh, then he will give his, and I'll give some thoughts. But my movie is A Time to Kill, um, and it has been my personal most favorite movie for probably a little over 20 years. Um, it did has did not you see moved. it in the theater? I did not. Okay. I did not see it in uh, a theater, but uh, for those of you that aren't familiar, Time to Kill was directed by Joel Schumacher, who very shortly after that went on to ruin Batman. Um, but he will be forgiven because, for me because of this movie. Uh, stars Matthew McConaughey, um, Samuel L. Jackson, Sandra Bullock, Ashley Judd, Donald, and Kiefer Sutherland, Oliver Platt. Um, it's just a loaded cast. Kevin Spacey. Um, we have to mention he's in there now uh, for a whole other reasons. Oh, yeah. But yeah. Uh, it is based on a John Grisham novel. And um, John Grisham uh, is actually a lawyer. He was a trial lawyer before he started getting into writing. And one day when he was in court, he was sitting there uh, watching the trial of a watching a rape trial um, where the person was accused of raping a young girl. And he thought to himself, what would I do if that happened to my daughter? And that eventually inspired his idea for A Time to Kill, which um, takes a hard look at a whole bunch of, of issues. I would say it's kind of, it, at the time, it felt like kind of a natural modern follow-up to uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. We've seen a couple of different kinds of looks at that kind mm-hmm. of justice and race relations in the South. He wrote the book, he sent it in, and nobody was interested. So he actually later wrote The Firm, and that kind of got picked up and that got made into a movie with Tom so, Cruise. And it was so popular that they were like, hey, do you have hey, anything else? More? And he's like, actually, I have my first novel, which is A Time to Kill. So so I, I guess we can thank Tom Cruise for getting A Time to Kill. And I think Wilford Brimley's in the firm. So, you know, mm-hmm. I thank him for my oatmeal. I thank him for A Time <laughs> to Kill. Um, but what has always spoken to me is uh, the story. And I... Uh, it is not an easy story. Um, it's about no. a young African-American girl who is on her way home from the grocery store and is assaulted by two kind of vile hillbilly guys. Um, mm-hmm. One of whom is Nikki Kate. Percy from the Green Mile. Oh, yeah. Percy <gasps> from the Green Mile. Yes. So that guy, pretty he has a type, we'll say. He has no kidding. Um, anyway, Samuel Jackson plays her father and, um, it becomes sort of clear slash he's worried that they are going to be set free because of the nature of justice in the, they're in Mississippi. Um, and I think the novel was set in the eighties. Um, Makes sense. so he, he felt like there was a chance they were going to be set free and that wasn't okay with him. Um, and when they're coming into court on the verge of, uh, of going to their own trial, he hides himself away, pops out and kills them. 
so the film is really about his trial. And Matthew McConaughey plays a young lawyer named Jake Bergantz, who has his own family, who takes on the task of defending him in this very um, big trial. And there's a few things that I love about the movie. Um, there's probably the first thing for me is it's one of the rare movies that shows uh, the puts a value on fidelity in marriage. Uh, Matthew McConaughey is married to Ashley Judd in, this, in the movie, um, but Sandra Bullock is a young law student who's working with him, and Matthew McConaughey's character goes through some things where his marriage isn't in a great place, and he's given an opportunity to have an affair, and he does not, and he makes things right with his wife, and I... People may say that's a small thing, but I don't think that's a concept that gets portrayed that often. And it's something that's always stuck with me. Um, it takes a very hard look at race relations. Um, and it doesn't, I don't think it takes anything easy. It shows that there are issues on both sides, especially as it comes, you know, Carl, Carl Lee, as he goes through his trial process, um, you see people on both sides, um, you know, adding fuel to the fire. There's actually race riots outside and it's not, I think the film does a nice job of not portraying it all as one-sided, but portraying the idea that hate is a slippery slope that leads everybody into conflict. And then it takes a hard look at the notion of justice. And I'll be honest, I 100% disagree with the verdict that is overturned, that is presented in the film. I don't believe it to be justice, but the film, I have probably seen it almost a hundred times and I never fail to uh, break down in tears when Matthew McConaughey gives his closing statement. But yeah. what, uh, you got a chance to see it. What stood out to you? So like you were saying, um, one of the most powerful things about it is the way that it guts uh, and wears so many of its themes on its sleeve, which a lot of people who might watch it today might think the movie is a little heavy handed, I think. I mean, you think about the crowd outside, you literally have people saying, set him free or make him fry. And they're shouting and competing in volume. And there's not that many people not on either wearing a, a KKK hood or their skin is black. You know, like it, it's very divided and clear and upfront and straightforward about its message. But when you think about when this came out, which was 98, I believe. 96. 96. It's a time when you had to scream loud and be clear. And I feel like it's so important. So many things. The the Samuel L. Jackson and Matthew McConaughey are like powerhouses through this whole thing. And even Sandra Bullock, like you mentioned, they, the, the way that she's able to stand up for her values through this and play another part in that and then play this role in Matthew McConaughey's life where she manages to not be a seductress, even though there's this chemistry between them. They touch on this just enough. They have this be just a big enough part of his life to not detract from the bigger, you know, conflicts in the movie and i thought it was absolutely fantastic it blew me away it was so hard to stomach sometimes but that's so the point and i gotta you know what i gotta disagree with you about the uh the verdict because i i can understand what you're saying that the verdict technically is you know inaccurate and it is true uh but i think you know in any like real law case if you know the whole movie kevin spacey is calling him and objecting to all these appeals to emotion because they're not countering the facts of the case and in the end it's just a big appeal to emotion or so you could write it off but i think the the idea here 
is to uh, my brain is doing the post-COVID thing. It's 2022, and I almost lost that for a second. Oh, it is. You're all right. The, the entire thing is about jury nullification. A, kind of, yes. But also at the same time, I, I feel like it's about um, uh, the consequences of our action and where we draw the line between uh, being in control and not being in control of ourselves. You know, I think there's so many times where Matthew McConaughey is pushed into whether he would or would not be in control of himself. And then they present this other opportunity. Will you be unfaithful or not? Well, he has control over that, but he doesn't hear. And it's just this dividing line where I think he drives the jury to ask themselves, would you behave in a sane manner in this situation? And, and that's the big question that you sort of have to answer for yourself is if you were in that jury box, would you consider yourself I would react in a sane manner to that situation, or I would react not in a sane manner. And so that's kind of, it's left up to the jury to decide and it's left up to the viewer to decide. So I can't say whether I disagree or agree because I'm not sure what the deliberation is of the jury. I kind of want a whole sequel of 12 Angry Men like remade to, to sit in that room as a companion to this, to have people break it down. But, you know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it makes you think and it gets you in the heart. You picked a movie as your favorite movie that I have to say I dearly love as well. So why don't I, you take off? I adore this. It was so hard to pick. So, you know, I, I'm sneaking in movies that I love, you know, into the background here. But I ultimately chose Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, a movie that I first saw uh, accidentally uh, passing my television, uh, <laughs> like in our house uh, when I was younger where uh, Robert Downey Jr. is standing in a bathroom and turns and there's a corpse <laughs> in a bathtub. That and is the scene. I was sucked in. I couldn't believe what I was watching. For one, for cable television to be pulling off some of what they're pulling off. But shortly thereafter, here's Val Kilmer, a homosexual detective, helping him toss the body from the roof of a hotel. And I'm just so engaged. Written and directed by Shane Black with an unbelievable score by John Ottman. This movie, I hunted this down. This is the first Blu-ray I ever bought. And that's ultimately why I picked it. And this is because, you know, it, that was a new format at the time and whatnot. And I just saw this and was like, that's the movie from the TV that I never saw the whole thing. And there are so many details I want to go in. But I just, in short, it's a story being told by a flawed character. And that's played so perfectly. And it's just twofold mysteries that get pulled in where Robert Downey Jr. is supposed to be taught to be an actor who's playing a detective by Val Kilmer. Even that is a facade, but it would take forever to just, just watch the movie, you know? It's a story that that unfolds the way it does on purpose. There's so much humor and so much heart and so much uh, grit that is just kind of like brushed over. And it's just it's fantastic the way that this movie unfolds and the way that it's told. Uh, Shane Black is, I think, an incredible uh, director and writer, no matter what the Predator is. Um, you know, and it's just, I think they managed to dance around Val Kilmer playing a homosexual character without using that as some sort of joke, uh, even though the characters are playing off of one another and using it as a joke. It's like between them. 
And just uh, uh, Robert Downey Jr. wrapped up in a murder mystery and he's narrating the whole time. Like, what else can I tell you, you know? He's got such a natural gift uh, with comedy. And for those of you that have seen it, Shane Black actually is the original creator of Lethal Weapon. And mm-hmm. I've always enjoyed the Lethal Weapon movies. So I, um, unlike you who stumbles on it in cable, I was actually excited, read about it in my Entertainment Weekly because I was out of college by then. And I remember seeing it in the theater. I'm pretty sure I saw it with my mother in the, the theater because she used to be my movie-going buddy sometimes. And you're right, that scene where he's just standing there and he's peeing and he notices a body and like accidentally rolls over and doesn't stop the stream. <laughs> and then later Val Kilmer, why did you pee on it? Yeah. I I don't think Can I they get like DNA that from that? <laughs> and it's a Christmas movie. You forgot the best part. A lot of oh, uh, yeah. Shane Black like Shane Black's a lot of his movies, movies are Chris are these well, kind that's of Christmas the whole thing. The original Lethal Weapon's a Christmas movie. Yep. Uh, Iron Man is the only MCU mm-hmm. Christmas movie. Three. Um, Robert Downey Jr. is really just a criminal trying to steal a Christmas present for his kid, and then he gets accidentally cast. Like, it's it's a whole thing. You know what? The thing I love the most about Shane Black's storytelling that's in this is this notion that you are, like, two-thirds of the way through this movie, and you're expecting a, a traditional structure. And uh, two characters are having a conversation, and a, a stereotypical beat comes, and the door gets slammed in his face. But then they have to open the door because... She has to ask, did I just cut your finger off? He's like, yeah, I'm trying not to look at it. It's there on the ground. And you have to sidetrack the whole story to go get his finger reattached. And it just, that's something they have to deal with now. Like, that is not needed for the movie at all, but it makes it so much better. I love that movie. Well, it's good good performance from Michelle Monaghan. It was one mm-hmm. of the early movies I think I remember seeing with her. And I, I think it's actually one of Val Kilmer's better performances it was so surprising um you know and it comes at a, at a different time the movie dropped i, I think it was 2006 oh 2005 yeah so a little bit uh kind of later after that first wave of his you know top gun kind of uh willow career yeah. i've seen him in there and it's robert downey jr um just has such a gift for some of these these parts i actually watched another movie that dropped from that year um this weekend that good night and good luck and you just see robert downey jr his range with yeah. things he can be incredibly serious he can be funny that's you see all those things kind of come together uh in iron man i just want people to go back and remember a time before he was iron man and appreciate some of like that full uh body of work some of the oh amazing work that he did early yeah and especially there's this little quiet period right when he's beginning to rebuild his career and there's so much there to enjoy. Like, absolutely. Well, those are a couple of our personal favorites. Uh, as we, uh, as we said, we uh, hope that you have enjoyed and we'll be back. We will yep. be back on Labor Day weekend, looking at each of us picking a couple of our favorite films from summer and, uh, just be prepared. They won't all be blockbusters because um, mm-hmm. we have a wide range of film interests uh, as the show will will show as we're going through. And probably as you've already gathered from our two <laughs> choices for, yeah. for favorite films. So uh, until then, make sure to follow Eric. Where can they follow you? At High Contrast FLM at Twitter. And you can pretty much find all of my social media links in there. 
And I am at Nighthawk7734 on Twitter. And you can follow the show at Weekly Film Party. You can follow us uh, there or on Instagram or on our own YouTube channel. Until next time, the film room is closed. <laughs>